A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by Teach Coalition, with the message that for weeks we have reminded you to vote in the New York City mayoral election and so many community members heard the call and heeded the call and answered. From Crown Heights to Williamsburg, from Farakaway to Kew Garden Hills, from the east and west side of Manhattan to Flatbush and, of course, Borough Park, and all over the city, neighborhoods all over, community members turned out in droves to vote, to continue to be part of this movement, encouraging the community to vote, being politically engaged and community-oriented, or meeting with your elected officials. Visit teachcoalition.org today and join the movement. And I got to add that uh, Jewish History Soundbites was very proud to have been part of that campaign and uh, and hopes to always uh, be on, you know, be being mindful of of our place in history and continuing activism in the present. Um, this episode is uh, about uh, Rebeliezer Silver. Once again, we had such a successful and positive feedback from part one, so I decided to follow it up with a part two on him as an amazing person and the amount that he accomplished. So I'm going to continue and perhaps delve in a bit more in depth into some of the aspects of his life that were just uh, done briefly in, in part one. But before that, there's some letters that I received, and I'm not going to read all of them, obviously, but some of the more interesting ones a, a very knowledgeable and dedicated listener um, submitted the story that he himself heard from Rabbi Ephraim Greenblatt, the author of The River Vice Ephraim, a prominent rabbi in Pisic in Memphis, Tennessee, for many years. And he related how, as a young man, he was on his way to his first rabbinical position, uh, taking a train across the United States from wherever he was, I guess from New York, and he decided to take a detour and go to Cincinnati and and uh, or detour it was on the way. I don't know. I didn't get all the exact details, but he ended up by in Cincinnati and he stayed by Rebeliezer Silver, and um, and he told him he's becoming a rabbi, and he's uh, you know nervous. And Rebeliezer Silver, you know, this is the post-war. This is the 1950s, I'm assuming, or late 40s, early 50s. And um, and Rebeliezer Silver says, uh, you know, tries to encourage him and inspire him. And young charge, 
he's the senior rabbi of the American rabbinate, and here's a young upstart becoming a rabbi in a new town, a faraway place. And um, and Rafael Greenblatt mentions that one of his reservations is that the, he doesn't really have any books, any of his svarim. He can't afford it. He doesn't have the budget to bring svarim down to Memphis. He doesn't now know how many svarim there are down in Memphis. And as a young, lonely rabbi, he's going to require, as a reference point, all these svarim, all these books. And Rebelezer Silver, on the spot, he stands up and says, you go to my library right now, and you see if there are any any svarim that are doubles, any ones that there's a two copies of the same sefer, take all of the doubles, any ones you need, any ones you want, for free. Take them, box them up, and take them with you. They're yours. And uh, he went ahead, and Blaze Silver actually had a, quite a, a prestigious library. He was something of a collector, and he had several thousand books in his library. And Rabbi Ephraim Greenberg combed his library and took several crates of svarim. This was the formed the the basis of his own library, which eventually Rabbi Ephraim Greenberg built up his own collection and w- was the original svarim that he used as a young rabbi in Memphis. So not only is it a generous gift, but it also as the uh, you know the senior rabbi of the American rabbinate uh, looking out for and encouraging and taking care of the young rabbis who are just starting out on their what's going to be a long and illustrious rabbinical career. Another bunch of listeners submitted to me a funny story. I mentioned Rebelezer Silver's sharp wit, so they submitted a story about that, that uh, he and the Satmarov, Rebelezer Teitelbaum, were in a car once, and here you have two great rabbis with a sharp wit, so it's going to be you know definitely a, an exciting and fun, entertaining ride. And they got stuck in traffic in New York City. And um, and Blazer Silver, always the Litvak, he turns to the Satmarov and says, "No, you're a Hasidic Rebbe. Why don't you perform a miracle for us and do kfitza saderach? Make uh, make us able to to get there quicker. You can perform miracles as a Hasidic Rebbe." So the Satmarov says, "I would. I'll tell you. I have a little problem." He says, "What's the issue?" So he says, "We see when Avram Avinu went to the Akeda." It took him three days to reach, to reach the place where he was to perform the akeda uh, um, in on Har Hameria. and he said, "Why did it take him three days? Why couldn't he do kvitzas aderech? Why couldn't he perform a miracle and get there quicker?" So the answer is because we see that Eliezer was with Avram on this journey. So when you're with Eliezer, you can't perform a miracle of kvitzas aderech, and that was his answer. So that's. Um, that's, uh, I got a lot of other letters, we'll hold that for now, because I'm sure that as popular as the story and as interesting as the story as Eliezer Silver is, there might be a part three, and who knows, maybe even a part four one day, and we'll have plenty of opportunity to to gather all the material that I received and will receive about him, but now I want to focus on something else. I mentioned in part one that he had a prominent role in both the founding and the running of uh, four the very important organizations in American Jewish life, which had, of course, an effect on European Jewish life, and that was the Agudas Rabbanan, the Council of Rabbis, the Ezra's Torah, which was founded during World War One to assist rabbis and yeshiva students who had become uh, refugees during World War One. Later on, the Agudas Yisrael of America, and then during the uh, years of the, of the Second World War and its aftermath, the Vad Hatzalah, the Rescue Committee. 
Um, in light of the fact that today is Shavasar Batamas, and it's a, a sad, sad day in our nation's history and and beginning of, of the three weeks, so I decided that I perhaps I'll focus on his Holocaust era rescue work through the organization which he founded, the Vad Hatzalah. Thought that was most appropriate, and we'll save the other stuff for perhaps another time. And I will fill in along the way. I do also want to fill in some gaps that I left in his biography, which I uh, neglected to delve into last time. I also want to mention that now, and then I'll get, like I said, the the focus will be on his his um, his um, Holocaust era rescue work. So first of all, I want to start off with a story, which I had the privilege of just mentioning recently. I was in. Um, it was in um, Central Europe just a couple of weeks ago, and I visited the Mauthausen concentration camp for the first time. Um, and it was a powerful experience. We went to the Stairs of Death, 186 stairs from the quarry up to the camp, which uh, the inmates of the camp had to carry up. Um, granite was up to 110 pounds. Uh, Mauthausen is a, a terrible was a terrible place, and um, uh, you know over 30,000 Jews. Died there, uh, and, uh, and it was it was actually primarily for non-Jews. There were about a tenth of the victims were Jews. Uh, there was over two hundred thousand victims in the camp uh, who who were killed there. So it was mostly non-Jews, but still it was a very powerful experience and some stories. And I related a story that had actually taken place there, um, and uh, it's quite a famous story with their blazer silver. I mean, he he he. When Rebbe Silver experienced the story, it obviously wasn't in Mauthausen, but the story was about something that had taken place in Mauthausen. And the story was as follows. It was on that three-month visit that I mentioned of Rebbe Silver to uh, Europe in the aftermath of the war. And in one of the camps that he uh, visited, he was told that there was a young man who was not interested, because of what he had experienced during the Holocaust, he was no longer interested in being a part of the Jewish people. And uh, that saddened Blazer Silver. So he went over to speak to him, and he said, "What is it? What, what was it? Something that you experienced? What was it? Um, you know, can you share it with me?" And this young man said, "Yes, I will share it. I was in Mauthausen, and a prisoner arrived, and he was in my barracks, and uh, and he said to me that the, what, what's able to keep him going is that he was able to smuggle with him through every camp that he's been into so far a sitter." And he's able to pray, and this connection to God is able to keep him going. And that was very inspiring. And uh, and uh, the secret got out. This fellow tried to keep it a secret because this could be punishable by death or beating or who knows what by the Nazis. But other inmates found out about it. And they asked him, could they perhaps use his sitter as well? And they would get the same inspiration, the same connection to God that kept him going, and it would keep them going and give them a reason to live and hope for a better future as well. And he said, oh, you want to use my sitter? You'll have to give me part of your food ration for the day, which in Mauthausen was very limited, as in most concentration camps, but Mauthausen was quite notorious in many ways, and um, and they already had very limited uh, food, and people were starved and died of malnutrition, and here this person is extorting food from other prisoners just for the privilege of using his sitter. And this and this young man tells her Blazer Silver that when I saw that, um, I said, look at this person. He's using religion. He's using prayer. He's using God. And he's hiding behind that to extort food from other starving Jewish, his fellow brothers, his fellow Jews. 
How can how can I remain part of a people like that? That's such a despicable thing. And he no longer wants to have anything, any Jewish identity, any part of the Jewish people. And um, and Rebbe Silver sits there and says, I understand, and it's hard to judge. I wasn't there. I was in America, so it's hard for me to judge what was going on at the time. Perhaps he was so starved that it colored his judgment. Perhaps uh, there's no justification for it. But I have a question for you. Was were there any takers? Did anyone do it? Did anyone take him up upon his offer? And he said, sure, many people did. Many people willingly gave up part of their food ration to partake and use the, utilize the opportunity to use a sitter and pray to God in that harsh and horrible time and place. So he said, so you got it all wrong. You're looking at one person who acted in a despicable fashion. But why don't you look at all the others who, who were willing to give up their food, their daily ration, or part of their daily ration for the opportunity to pray? And if you look at them, that will completely change your perspective. And he thought about it, and he said, you're right, Rabbi. And he went, on, went ahead and, and, and uh, decided to rejoin the Jewish people, as it were, and play a prominent role. And that young man eventually moved to Vienna and became the world-famous Simon Wiesenthal, who dedicated his life to Nazi hunting and definitely was a very productive and influential member of the Jewish people, even though it wasn't an observant Jew, but in many, many other ways. So that was the influence of uh, Rabbi Ezra Silver. Um, and uh, that was during that, uh, during that visit. Now, a few listeners asked me about the earlier part of his life, about uh, why, why he immigrated to Russia, from, excuse me, from Lithuania, from Russia, when he did in, 1906, in 1906. And it does seem that he received the Russian army draft, and he believed that emigration was the best option. So um, Rabbi Ezra Silver comes to that rabbinical role and prominent leadership role in the United States uh, because he was running away from the draft, essentially. And, and, uh, and I, um, I mentioned his, his meeting with, Rabbi Silva's meeting with uh, President Taft in 1912. Um, so I want to elaborate on that for a minute. It was under the auspices of the Agudas Rabbanim, which he was already a member of, only five years after his uh, arrival. And it was a historic occasion because it was the first time that Orthodox Jewry had political lobbying, a delegation that was meeting with the President of the United States. Ironically, just uh, to give it a wider, uh, broader scope of a historical view, ironically, this took just a few days, this took place just a few days after the Katowice Conference, which at, at which Agudas Yisrael was founded. So here we have Orthodox Jewry in the United States meeting with the President for the first time. And just a few days earlier, uh, Orthodox Jewry was finally getting politically organized in Europe and founding an organization of their own. So you see that Orthodox political activism was uh, reaching a new phase at this time in June 1912. So at this meeting with President Taft, so uh, there's a discussion among the rabbis of the delegation about whether they should keep their hats on. And Herbalizer Silver insisted that they should keep their hats on, even though it was considered appropriate to when you greet the president, especially indoors, you take off your hat. You, you know, and he said, first of all, God comes first before the president. And also, uh, we, it would be an opportunity to recite the blessing that's appropriate for a leader of a country. And this way we can only do for wearing our hats. Now, I don't know if that part of the story is true. The source that I read claimed it is. But if it is true, then it is a bit odd that Erlazer Silver felt it appropriate to recite the blessing on the president of the United States because... 
as far as I know, and I'm definitely not proficient in the halachic uh, aspects of the question, but as far as I know, we do not recite that blessing. Uh, but perhaps, and this is what I was speculating as, as, as a histor- in, in its historical context, that as a relatively new immigrant from Tsarist Russia, where the Tsar was an absolute ruler, unlike the President of the United States, so he did not yet understand the nature of American politics, and perhaps that's why he thought that it is appropriate to recite this blessing. Either way, Taft asked for his own hat to be brought to be brought in as he joined the distinguished rabbis in conducting the meeting while hatted in respect of God. That's what Taft said. Um, later on, Rebbeinu Silver was visiting Lithuania, um, and his and his uh, he was visiting his family back in Lithuania when World War One broke out. And he meets with Reb Chaim and that's what led to the founding of uh, Ezra's Torah, the organization which essentially also you know, a prominent rabbi in America at the time, Rabbi Israel Rosenberg, who had a large part in its founding, and others, and, and, and Reb Silver worked in many joint endeavors together with Rabbi Israel Rosenberg. They were two very prominent rabbis on the United States scene at the time in the first half of the 20th century. So Ezra's Torah was basically under the auspices of the Agudas Rabbanim to assist needy Torah scholars who had been displaced and were refugees during World War I. So that's as far as Ezra's Torah. As far as our good as Yisrael, before I get back, I wanted to open up with the story of Mauthausen because I was just there and, uh, and, uh, and I was able to say the story on the spot. But I will be getting back to his, his uh, momentarily to his uh, uh, activism during the war. I just wanted to touch on some of the other aspects of his life that I felt uh, were, were, that I didn't, didn't expound upon in part one. So getting to the Agudas Yisrael. So he did, before he founded the Agudas Yisrael in the United States, um, he had already attended the third Knesia, the third great gathering of the world Agudas Yisrael movement in Marienbad, in Czechoslovakia, in 1937, which was the last great Torah meeting uh, before before European Jewry was decimated during the Holocaust. So before, this was before there was even a functioning uh, Agudas Yisrael in the United States. Later on, in 1939, two years later, he founded the organization, although the real engine for it was another organization which had been founded by Mike Tress, which was the Youth Aguda, or the Tseire Aguda, the young of Agudas Yisrael in America, and that became um, the feeder into the Aguda that Reblazer Silver founded. There was a skeleton office um, of Agudas Yisrael in America that already had been founded in the 1920s. There was a delegation of Agudas Yisrael that visited Polish rabbis, who visited America at the time, but that nothing really uh, took off until Laser Silver really uh, got it started in 1939. Okay, now we finally get to World War II and the Holocaust, and um, so the war breaks out, of course, on September 1st, 1939, and as is somewhat well known, many of the yeshivas uh, of, of uh, which were located in the Kresy uh, district area uh, uh, vicinity in eastern Poland, they flee to Vilna because with the Soviet takeover of eastern Poland under the secret clause of the, uh, Soviet, of the Soviet Nazi uh, non-aggression pact, the Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact, which had been signed a week before, on August 23, 1939, and the secret clause was that the Soviet Union would invade eastern Poland, which they did on September 17th, two and a half weeks after the Nazis invaded the central, central and western Poland, and um, and the and the uh, the the uh, 
with the Soviet takeover, so it became, you know, problematic, or it was perceived, it was going to be problematic for religious life to continue under the communists, and therefore they were looking to escape, and as it happened, a window of escape that opened, which is quite famous, that the Soviet Union decided to return Vilna, which had historically belonged to Lithuania, but in the interwar period belonged to Poland. So they decided to return Vilna and its environs to Lithuania. So anyone who would be in Vilna during that time would automatically be in Lithuania, so many flee to Lithuania to escape the Soviets. So we have eastern Poland, which are the Soviets, we have central and western Poland under the Nazis, and then we have independent Lithuania, which includes Vilna, and thousands, among the tens of thousands of refugees, there are several thousand, excuse me, who are yeshiva students. At this point, Reb Chaim who's the father of the entire uh, yeshiva Torah world, he took the personal responsibility on his frail shoulders, he was already old and sick, he asks his student, Reb Eliezer Silver, to assist him in sustaining the yeshivas in the Vilna area. They are refugees, they need food and support. Now the Joint and Hyas and other organizations were already providing general support, but Reb Chaim had already felt from the late 1920s and already from the early 30s, talking about for 10-15 years, he already had already felt that what the Joint was providing was not enough, that yeshivas and rabbis have unique needs which the Joint was unable or unwilling to provide. And it's the same with other groups, other groups uh, of within the refugees crisis in Vilna. The American Jewish Labor Committee began to assist Bundist refugees stuck in Vilna. And the American Zionist organizations began to assist Zionist ones. So this was not limited to the Torah community. Uh, the joint was nonpartisan and was very general and supported everyone. And then you had these other small, much smaller organizations that supported specific uh, demographics. So Eliezer Silver calls a meeting of the Agudas Rabbanim, which, uh, which meets on November 13th and 14th, 1939. Now, the, the dates are somewhat important, and I some, always become a little annoying and a stickler for dates when it comes to the, the, this era, so you'll bear with me. And the question is, what to do with the yeshivas and the rabbis who are refugees in Vilna? And three suggestions are proposed. One, traditional. Each yeshiva should fundraise on its own. Okay. Number two, the Agudas Rabbanim should work with the joint and Ezra's Torah, which is basically under its auspices, and uh, and funnel and get funding to these yeshivas that way. Funding so that these yeshivas should function, right? Continue to function in independent, neutral Lithuania. Number three was a new proposal by Rebel Yezer Silver himself to found a new organization which would be separate from the Agudas Rabbanim, and it would be an all-encompassing organization with all the Orthodox groups uh, in, that existed in the United States at the time. Agudas Yisrael, the Young Israel, the Mizrahi, the Rabbinical Council of America, the OU, Orthodox lay leaders and local Orthodox organizations. And it would be more political and it would have a larger scope. And it would be nonpartisan within the Orthodox community, which was already splintered at that time. And this would be kind of a, an umbrella organization. So Leazar Silver's platform was accepted, and the Vad Hatzalah is founded in November or December 1939, in the last months of 1939, with the goal of doing what? Of, of assisting yeshivas and rabbi refugees in Vilna, in independent Lithuania. The name of the Vad was 
the official American English name was the Emergency Committee for War-Torn Yeshivas, Yeshivoth, right? So it was specifically Yeshivas that had were refugees and had escaped to an independent country, Lithuania, and they were now functioning as yeshivas in those in that country. They needed to continue to function and they needed funding. And that's why the Vatatzala is founded, and that's their goal and modus operandi. It is not a general rescue of European Jewry, and there was nothing that they had to offer for Jews who were under Nazi occupation. They were offering assistance for Jews not under Nazi occupation in independent Lithuania. That remained up to, for the Jews under Nazi occupation and for the rescue and assistance of European Jewry under the Nazis, that remained up to the joint and the many other secular Jewish organizations uh, which continued to assist Jews in ghettos and others until the U.S. entry into the war in December of 1941. Although the Agudis Yisrael in America did send some packages to their members in the ghettos in occupied Poland. There was a religious organization involved in that, but that was not the Varadzola. So Blazer Silver wanted to know the needs of these yeshivas in independent Lithuania, and so he dispatches a fellow Cincinnatian, Dr. Samuel Schmidt, who was a close to the Blazer Silver, was not exactly an observant Jew, he became much more observant as time went on, mainly because of this experience, and he goes to Vilna, and he's very inspired by Rabbi Chaim Meiser. He arrives there, and he's inspired by the dedication of the yeshiva students who are refugees, who are starving, who have no most, who have nowhere to stay, and they're studying under these adverse conditions in the chaos of the refugee crisis in Lithuania. He arrives there. Schmidt arrives there in February of 1940, and he remains there for three months, to the end of February. So he remains there from March, April, and May, and. Um, Lithuania remains independent during this time. So this is a neutral uh, country, independent. So the fundraising was carried out to enable the yeshivas to continue their studies in their new home. In June, in August 1940, two developments took place which had an effect honorably as a silver and the activities of his Varatzala. Number one was the Soviet takeover of Lithuania, and they are brought into the Soviet Union. So now the Soviets, the communists, are there again, and they start to close down the yeshivas as counter-revolutionary places and religion and all that. And then, of course, the passing of his great rebbe and teacher, Rabbi Chaim Eisergrzynski. These two were devastating blows. And new approaches had to be made to attempt uh, attempts for the Varadzala, so they start to do different things. We can't sustain the yeshivas in Lithuania anymore because now they're under the communist Russians. So instead, they start to attempt to obtain individual visas for rabbis and exit visas, uh, including funding for exit visas for yeshiva students who were trying to leave Soviet-occupied Lithuania. That that was the next attempt. To, to, that was the next stage. Um, that takes place through 1940 and the early parts of 1941. The next development was the rescue of Rabar and Cutler. Through Rebleza Silver's efforts, he was able to arrive in the United States in April 1941, and he stops over in Cincinnati, by, where he's hosted by Rebleza Silver, who then accompanies him to New York. And Rebleza Silver is the one who introduces Rebaran Cutler to American Jewry. There's a small crowd, mainly of Mike Tress's uh, followers in the Tzairi Agudas Yisrael, who came to greet Rebaran Cutler in Penn Station in Manhattan, and the one who gets off and says, Look who's here, the future leader of Torah Jewry in America, the one who introduces Rabaran to American Jewry, Israel Blazer Silver. Now the Vod's functions begin, began 
to be supporting yeshiva students in exile. They were trying to get visas to get rabbis and yeshiva students out. And eventually, um, they support those who are in exile. Uh, Primarily, the two places where most yeshiva students were in exile were in Shanghai and in Siberia. The the Soviets had exiled in Siberia and allowed uh, food packages and, and even money to arrive to them from outside. So, the primary function of the Vada Yeshivas, seeing, uh, excuse me, Vada Hatzala, being that they saw themselves as assisting yeshivas and rabbis and yeshiva students during the years of the war, they are all the, their fundraising efforts and their and their activities are limited to assisting exiled yeshiva students, primarily in Shanghai and Siberia, and getting visas for individual rabbis and students to exit. No rescue yet. In the meantime what's going on, things are happening in the Holocaust, and that's going to change the activities of the Vada Tzala and have a deep effect on Rebbe Silver himself. Um, in the meantime, ghettos are established. In June uh, 1941, there's the invasion of the Soviet Union, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, the mass murder of the Jews of the Soviet Union begins in December of that year. The U.S. joins the war. In the beginning of 1942, the final solution is implemented, and European Jewry starts to get deported to the gas chambers, and this is how the years developed from 1940, 41, 42, and most of 1943. By late 1943, after most of European Jews under Nazi occupation had already been murdered, remember Hungary was not yet under Nazi occupation, it only happened in March 1944, so this is already in late 1943, most of European Jews under Nazi occupation had already been murdered. American Jewry finally began to internalize the overwhelming reality, the magnitude, and the totality of the final solution. And at this point, the Vada Tzala finally changes tactics. The name was eventually formally changed to the Emergency Committee for Relief, Rehabilitation, and Reconstruction. So it was not going to be limited to assisting yeshiva students in exile. This was to be a temporary shift, by the way. It was immediately upon the war's end. They reverted back to focusing exclusively on religious needs with the primary focus on yeshiva students and rabbis. So the general and broader scope of rescue efforts for the small remnant of European Jewry lasted a little bit under two years, but those were a crucial two years, because in this new capacity, Blazer Silver made a courageous move. He initiated contact with Peter Bergson, who was a rescue activist and ran his own organization, um, revisionist Zionist and tried to galvanize the um, indifferent and ambivalent American public to the rescue of European Jewry. And Peter Bergson, uh, together with Eliezer Silver, organized the Rabbi's March in Washington on October 6, 1943. This was an unprecedented step in the history of Orthodox Jewry in the modern era. Um, and I covered it in another episode. I have an episode uh, devoted exclusively to the Rabbi's March in Washington, so you can listen to that and the fascinating story of that. It's called, I think, The Sound of Silence, the uh, Rabbi's March in Washington. Uh, tra- you know, though it was perceived by many at the time as a failure, it did produce tangible results in influencing the establishment in January of 1944 of uh, the War Refugee Board. So it did have real results, but beyond that, it can also be argued that it was a high moment of Orthodox unity and diplomacy, which perhaps influenced the development of Orthodox Jewish politics in the United States in the ensuing decades, although that's speculative and a bit hard to prove, but perhaps we can see that as somewhat of a beginning, this was a 400 Orthodox rabbis swarming the steps of the United States Capitol and the Lincoln Memorial and having Kelmale 
uh, uh, said by the Melitzer Rebbe. I mean, it's, it was a very big moment, and up until then, Orthodox Jewry had kept a very low profile, and here, you know, in the second half of the 20th century, they were to be in the corridors of power in Washington, so this possibly is a watershed uh, moment. Rebbe Silver read a proclamation in Hebrew on the states of the capital, which uh, Rabbi Wolf Gold, the head of the Mizrahi in the United States, read an English translation of. So the gist of this proclamation was that the government needs to take urgent measures for saving the Jewish people in Europe by A, stop the mass killings by the Nazis, B, warning the German people that the crimes will not go unpunished while rescue activities will receive due recognition, C, sending food and medical help to Jews in the ghettos, D, neutral countries should give Jews safe haven, E, easing immigration quotas to the United States, F, easing immigration to Palestine, G, establishing a special agency for rescue. That last demand actually bore, like I said, to fruition with the establishment of the War Refugee Board. Other other parts of that proclamation were we could wishful thinking um, when the United States did not change their policy on immigration, neither did the British on Palestine. And other points of that proclamation are strikingly revealing for how little American Jewry was aware of what was going on in the Holocaust, even at this late stage in October 1943, and even someone as informed as Blazer Silver, um, who, who, who authored and read this proclamation. Uh, it's a kind of tragic in retrospect of what we know today. For example, um, the uh, um, par- um, sub-paragraph, I don't know what to call it, point C on that proclamation um, is is to uh, send food and medical help to Jews in ghettos. At this point, in October 1943, there are almost no ghettos. Almost all the ghettos had already been liquidated and the, their occupants, uh, their inhabitants, had already been gassed. There was almost no one left. There was a few Jews left in Ludge, a f- even fewer in Kovna, um, and a couple of other small, isolated ghettos. But of the thousand close to a thousand or over a thousand ghettos that had been Nazi-occupied Europe at its peak, there was almost none left at this point, unfortunately. And that was not known. So here you have, uh, can we send some food to the ghettos, you know? Rebeza Silver and Avada Tzala were involved in many more rescue attempts, uh, which is a story for another time when we talk about Avada Tzala, and I have touched upon it in other episodes. It's hard to say how much actual rescue there was. Of course, even one Jewish life rescued is important, and as with most Holocaust stories, there was much more tragedy than successes, but the, the point is how much they tried and how much they wanted to, and they even had limited success. In August 1944, there was an interesting story. Uh, close to a thousand Jewish refugees were allowed into the United States from Italy. They came to Fort Ontario in Oswego, New York, and this was the only time during the entire Second World War that the United States allowed a group of refugees in as a group. And Blazer Silver led a delegation to care for the 300 Orthodox Jews of that contingent and what their needs were. Kosher food and ritual items, a school and a mikvah. There was actually an entertaining scene ensued as Blazer Silver attempted to clarify what a mikvah was to the Quaker camp director, a fellow by the name of Joe Smart. And this fellow could not understand what a mikvah was, and but they were successful at building a mikvah um, under Blazer Silver's auspices after just two weeks, funded by the Varatzal. Um, an assessment of their short-lived activities at rescue was expressed by Reblazer Silver himself at the funeral after the untimely passing of Remichol Ber Weismandl, the great rescue activist who worked under Nazi occupation in Slovakia during the war. 
and his untimely passing in 1957 in New York, and Reblazer Silver delivered the main eulogy, and the gist of it was his crying out, and in, in, in somewhat in, in regret or hopelessness, he kept on repeating, if only we had listened to him, if only we did more, we could have saved more, we didn't listen enough, and if only we had listened to him, if only, if only, if only. That's how Reblazer Silver uh, uh, eulogized Remechober Weissmandel. But the Reblazer oversees the post-war rescue activities, which was uh, back to going, like I said, back to the original focus of the Varatzala, which was focusing exclusively on religious needs and with a focus on yeshivas and rabbis. On June 12, 1946, a little over a year after the war's end, he flies to Europe. He didn't take a boat. He flew a lot. He was actually a pioneer in flying. He used to fly from Cincinnati to New York quite often. Um, he would also take the train. He was a big traveler and uh, full of energy, and he's armed with letters of introduction from senators. He has a U.S. Army uniform, like I said, and $100,000 in cash from the Varatzala, like I mentioned, and religious articles. I don't know if I mentioned that last time. Um, he brings tefillin and talisim and svarim with him. He stays for three months, and he visited, um, in the sources it says 10 countries. I was able to find the names of eight of them, so I'm curious what the other two are, although I could guess um, uh, but guessing is, is I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'd rather see what I saw. Belgium, Holland, France, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Italy, Palestine, and a few other countries, maybe Austria, or maybe Turkey, I'm not sure. Um, he was 64 at the time, and it was a grueling journey, both physically and emotionally draining. He lost 35 pounds during those three months. It really took a drain on him. He was very shaken from what he saw. He wrote back in his dispatches, but how he sees people literally still starving. It's over a year after the war. These people had these survivors had been liberated. He saw people starving, clothes without clothes, without proper attire, begging in the streets, and it affected him very deeply and it affected him for the rest of his life. He also remained in debt for the rest of his life, as I mentioned, as a result of the personal loans he took, and he passed away penniless. Throughout his visit, he would deliver Torah classes. He wasn't just there to assist them in obtaining ritual items and food and clothing. He also wanted to revitalize Jewish life, and he encouraged youth to return to Torah study, and he encouraged the establishment of yeshivas and schools uh, in, in every place that he went to. When he was in Italy, actually, he offered $50 for, for anyone, any survivor in that camp who would study 25 pages of Gemara. One survivor approached him and said that he had never had the opportunity to engage in Talmudic study, so can it suffice if he recites 25 chapters of Tehillim? And Erblazer Silver agreed. He gave him his $50 for reciting 25 chapters of Tehillim. He just wanted, and he tried to encourage and inspire and with warmth and love to have the survivors return to Jewish life, to religious life. He met with dignitaries and heads of state and rescue activists and politicians. And then, of course, and primarily simple, ordinary Jews who were survivors, who were broken, who he tried to strengthen. He became, uh, when he returns to the United States, he in the, in the next couple of decades, he became something of a bridge from the Agudas Harabanim, the old school rabbinic world, to the new world of the survivors who were rebuilding, rebuilding Torah in the post-war, and with the rise of the yeshivas that were built in the post-war and headed by these tremendous leaders, uh, Russia Yeshiva, who became the uh, uh, primary Torah leaders in the next generation. So Relay Silver was kind of the bridge, and he in fact actually was a real bridge in the, in the fact that he assisted 
Tells Yeshiva and Lakewood Yeshiva and Panavish Yeshiva and others in their fundraising to be able to build, to be able to establish themselves and also men several day schools. So he actually laid the seeds for the yeshiva world to take the primary place in American and Israeli society. This this scion of the rabbinic world, he he built the yeshiva world as well. So it's very interesting. He once delivered a eulogy for the head of the Eidah HaKaredis in Yerushalayim, Reb Zelig Ruving Bengis. It was on his Shloishim, it was 30 days after Reb Bengis had passed away, and Reb Lezer Silver was delivering a hespid in Baltimore. And it was in the middle of the summer, and it was very hot, and only six people attended. A very small crowd for the greatest rabbi in the United States. And he said, don't think I'm talking to a small crowd. Each one of you in the audience will all get big positions in the spreading of Torah to the masses in the United States, and all six people in that audience did. So he had a vision. He had a vision of what he was was trying to do and trying to impart. And um, and this... uh, this uh, this this uh, this had an influence on others. When the mirrors, when the uh, Alta mirrors, when the Mir Yeshiva came up from finally, when the Vadatzela was able to get them out of Shanghai in late 1946 and early 1947, and they took a train ride across uh, the United States from San Francisco to New York, so they made it their business to stop in Cincinnati just to be able to see Blazer Silver, the one who he had uh, they had heard so much uh, about. Um, and uh, you know the way he was able to accomplish so much, he was known as being wild. He was he had energy and he and he had a, a wit and, a, and and he was he had a wildness to him. And the only way what people said about him was that the only way to get anything done was by being wild. He's always running, always doing things himself. Was an activist, and that was that was the way he accomplished so much. In his later years, 1950s and 60s, there was somewhat of a declining of his influence, and in general, the decline of the Agudas Rabbanim, but that's a subject for another time. There's still plenty more to say, so we'll hopefully save for a part three of Rebleza Silver. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, uh, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.